continuing our series in Genesis. We've been in the book of Genesis for almost a year. It's pretty incredible. I have really encountered God through the pages of the Old Testament in really unexpected ways. Seen, seen things I had not seen before, and some of the, the stories that I, I grew up with is hearing is just stories. And it's our privilege to be back in Genesis. So Genesis 33, 1 through 20. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Please accept this blessing that's brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows the children are frail, the nursing flocks, the herds are care to me. And if they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to see her. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the land, piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe, Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is full of riches. Lord, your word is full of treasures that that you want us to mine from. That you want us to be enriched from as we hear your word, as we meditate on your word, as we seek to apply your word. Lord, we know that your scripture was not just written for the Israelites in that day, but these scriptures were also meant to apply to us. Father, I pray that you would 
Enable us to see your word, to apply your word. Open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, may we submit ourselves before you this morning. Would you speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's no secret that our country is divided. Especially this time of year and right now, leading up to a presidential primary, it's, it's becoming even more clear our country is somewhat divided. Lines are drawn and, and slurs are hurled at different groups in society and there's all kinds of preferences and opinions. People divide over many things. There are Democrats, there's Republicans, there's Libertarian, there's, there's Green, there's many people throughout the U.S. They thought that electing an African-American president, well, that will resolve the issues of race. That will resolve racial conflicts in the United States, and yet it really hasn't. People are still divided and they're segregated socially into, into groups and, and calling themselves by labels of either blacks or whites or Asians or Native Americans, Latinos or Indians or whatever ethnic identity you choose. People are hating people and the crime statistics show it. In, in 2009, the FBI reports there are 806,000 cases in the United States alone of aggravated assault. 15,000 cases of murder. Disagreement in many areas of life. 17,000 personal lawsuits, just personal lawsuits filed in the U.S. alone. There's conflict in the church. There's church splits. There's factions. There's disagreements of all kinds. We're all prone to conflict. Unbeliever, believer alike. Needless to say, we all are desperately in need of reconciliation, aren't we? It's a conflicted world. We have much conflict that we experience in our lives. And if left to ourselves, our situation, it would be hopeless. But there's, there's good news. There's good news for our country. There's good news for our society. There's good news for South Carolina. There's good news for our church. There's good news for our families. There's good news for you and me and it's, it's not social reform. It's not political reform. It's, it's not technique or training. All those things can be helpful things that God uses to bring about change. But the good news is really one thing. It's that God is a God of reconciliation. And that's what we see in this story in Genesis. That God is a God of reconciliation. God is the one who reconciles us to him. That's what mankind needs the most. How can you resolve conflicts? Well, apart from God, it's, it's, really, it's really not possible. Only, only temporarily possible. You might have temporary peace, but you'll never have true and lasting peace apart from God. But the good news is that God's made a way of reconciliation. And once we're reconciled to him, then reconciliation with others is possible. And that's what we see in the story of Jacob, is that Jacob experienced reconciliation with God. In chapter 32, just, just the night before this verse. And, and now, because of that reconciliation that he's experienced with God, he's able then to experience reconciliation with his brother. He was in dire need, wasn't he? 400 men and Esau were coming to get him. That would be terrifying. He sends overtures of, I'd like to come and, and, and meet you. And, and the response he gets back from, from his messengers is, Esau is coming. With 400 men. Now 400 men wouldn't have had any, any good intents in that day. 
400 men was about the size of a militia. Esau was coming, and he was not coming, probably at least to begin with, with friendly intentions. There was conflict. Jacob had a problem, and he needed help. He needed reconciliation. And he needed God to do that work. Because you see, only God can do the work of reconciliation in our own hearts and with others. True and lasting peace is only brought through the Lord. And Jacob learned that lesson through these verses. You see, you see when he woke up that morning and he was, he was called to trust in God, he was aware that his brother was on the way with 400 probably armed men. This morning when you woke up, you may have been aware of conflict. You may have been aware of areas where you feel like you're not reconciled with somebody else. The call to us, the call to Jacob then, was to see the reconciliation of God, trust in God, and have faith in him to reconcile. Jacob made lots of preparations to meet Esau. He humbled himself. He prepared to make restitution for his theft of the birthright 20 years earlier. But ultimately, he had a trust in God to be reconciled. And I, and I believe that's the main lesson that all of us can apply from the Scripture today as well, is that believers are called to trust in God and be reconciled. Believers are called to trust in God and be reconciled. And immediately after, you see, these verses come immediately after, Jacob has just had an all-time, lifetime spiritual high. He has encountered God himself, and he's been blessed by God physically touched by God. And the next morning, his faith was tested pretty strongly. Would he trust in the God he had been reconciled with to reconcile him to his brother? Jacob was in need of reconciliation. We're in need of reconciliation as well, aren't we? And, and, and really, this morning, the, the first point that I want to draw out of, these, out of this scripture is that believers must be reconciled. It's not optional. You see, God, God was making him do what he needed to do most. He had Laban at his back. He had his brother and 400 men at his front. And God says, you need to trust me and be reconciled with your brother. Jacob saw his brother, and they probably on the warpath. He probably feared for his life. He knew the situation was desperate. Could you imagine? You left 20 years ago. Your mom said, hey, I'll let you know when he's no longer wanting to kill you. I'll give sin word for you. She never sent word. Word never came. He's probably still wanting to kill him. 400 men are coming with Esau. He wakes up. God, I thought I encountered you last night. What's up with that? When we encounter difficulty, conflict in relationships, we can, we can feel like God has somehow left us. And yet, no, God is not. He's making a way. He's going before us. Because he's the God of reconciliation. Maybe... Maybe Esau was bringing an army because he thought his brother might be coming with deceitful intent again. Maybe Esau thought Jacob might be coming for ill purposes. Who knows? We don't see Esau's motives. We don't know what he's thinking. But clearly, anybody reading this account that day, there would have been some tension. There would have been some heightened anticipation of, oh no, what's going to happen next? In our lives at times, we wonder, Lord, what is going to happen next? I can't see anything good coming of this. The situation is too large. It's, it's looming too ominously for me. 
But yet we can trust in God who's reconciled us to enable us to be reconciled with others as well. Jacob saw what was about to happen. He responded very quickly. This is classic Jacob. He was planning. He, he, he didn't sit idly by. He was a planner. He was smart. But he didn't just need reconciliation with his brother. You, you know, prior to this chapter 33, the last scene we have, Jacob was really acting in fear when he met God. He wasn't going to seek God. He was acting in fear. You see, he had put his family into camps. He sent them across the river. He went backwards across the river. That would have been a military strategy to protect the general, to go back behind the river where you're safer geographically. And, and he, was, he was being a coward, really. He encounters God. Now what do we see in this chapter? He needed to be reconciled with God because God dramatically changed him. He went from separating the camps, having his family go out in front of him, and him, him behind... God touches him. God reconciles him. Now, we see in these verses, Jacob, he goes out in front. See, God had brought about a change in Jacob that was necessary. He brought about humility in Jacob. Jacob wasn't cowardly hiding behind the lines now. Now Jacob is, is out in front and he's, he's humbling himself because he's been humbled. He's encountered God. He's understood that he has no worth before God on his own. And yet the Almighty has shown mercy to him. And he's humbled. And he's, he's repentant. He's going out ahead. And we, we see the actions that he takes are humble. For Christians, we, prior to being reconciled with others, we need to remember that, that we too needed to be reconciled to God ourselves. You can't just reconcile with somebody because you're told to. You can't just reconcile with somebody out of technique. Or you can't just say, well, Jacob was humble and gave gifts. So when we, if we're humble and give gifts, then that's the formula we need to use when we go and be reconciled. Or maybe I'm going to use some other formula as we're being reconciled with people. And no, those things are pleasing to the Lord. But, but what we need to understand is that it's God who's reconciled us. And it's God who's going to enable us to be reconciled with others. And in order for us to actually approach other people, we have to understand who we are in light of God. Our reconciliation with God, it wasn't optional, it was necessary. Jacob's reconciliation, God, it wasn't, it wasn't optional, it was necessary. He needed to be given a new name, new character. You can see that, boy, he changed. He was given new character overnight. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 5 16 to 21, he writes, From now on, therefore, regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Just like Israel been given a new name. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ making God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God 
For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As we approach anyone else to go and be reconciled, as we go and seek the, the reconciliation that, that most of us need in some form in relationship with a spouse, with a child, with family, extended family, you name it, I, I would bet everyone in this room has areas where they, they need to seek reconciliation. If you don't now, you will. And probably not too far in the future. If you're married, it's probably going to come this, this afternoon, maybe tomorrow. As you say, hey, honey, I don't think we have any areas to reconcile, do we? And then, <laughs> and then your wife says, what? <laughs> are you, are you Really? <laughs> If we're going to approach anybody to seek the reconciliation that we need, we, we can't view them and their offense or their sin apart from remembering our sin. See, Jacob saw his, his lack of worth. It humbled him. He could then approach his brother. When, when we see ourselves in light of the cross, in light of the fact that we were deserving of the wrath of God, and we didn't deserve reconciliation with God, that enables us to go and be reconciled with others. Jesus gave us a new name. He gave us a new heart. He's made us a new creation. He's made us born again. When we utterly deserve to be killed by God for our sins, God's made us alive in Christ, and he's reconciled us to himself. Now, like Jacob, he's given us the task he didn't let Jacob off the hook. He's not letting us off the hook either. Well, all those sins are behind me. Yeah, they sure are, and you need to be reconciled anyway. Now you, now you need to go and deal with them. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation as a means to actually show the love that he's had for us, that he's changed us. It's a means to preach the gospel. It's a means to share the love that God has for each and every one of us with the person we need to be reconciled with. He's made us ministers of reconciliation. He didn't count our sins against us. Instead, he counted our sins against Jesus. Whomever you are thinking of right now that you're aware you are not reconciled with, you, you need to, we need to count their sins as insignificant compared to ours. Now, that doesn't mean they are insignificant. You see, many in this room have been sinned against in some really egregious ways. You may have been hurt in very serious, painful ways that are difficult to forgive. But the only way that forgiveness is possible is if you see other sins in light of your own sins against Jesus. doesn't mean sins against others are trivial. They don't matter. They do matter. And it's, it can be very painful and difficult. Because the sin can be serious. But we have to remember that we're called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And for God, to allow God to make his appeal through us, we, we have to start by remembering, for our sake, he made him to be no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of Christ. Let me ask you. What sin that someone else has committed? Is greater than 
in your lifetime of sins against Jesus. What sin against you is worth more than the gift that you've received and the righteousness of Christ being applied to you? In Romans, Paul spells out this difficult kind of life. It's not, a, not an easy kind of life. I'm sure Jacob didn't feel like it was going to be easy. But God worked. God moved. God was in this reconciliation. In Romans 12, 16, it says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Boy, that's, that's, that's impossible on our own. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Now, you can't make somebody be reconciled with you, but it's so far as depends on you. Make every effort, as, as much as you can, to live peaceably with all. And Paul, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't telling us something new. He was really just expounding on Jesus' teachings. In, in Matthew 5, 23, when Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says that if we're going we're gonna to go and do a good thing, going to worship God, we're going to give an offering to God. He doesn't say, great, do that and go. He says, no, stop. If you want to worship God in spirit and in truth, you, you need to stop. You need to go and be reconciled. Our worship to God can be hindered if we're unreconciled with our brother. It keeps us from freely worshiping him with all that we are. So we're called to to go and be reconciled as far as it depends upon us. And in chapter 32 of Genesis, we look back, we see that Jacob needed that reconciliation with his brother. He would have placed his family in grave danger if he was not reconciled. The reason why he initially was being at the back of the, of the pack, because he was thinking that maybe he could make it out alive. Now God's changed him and he's out in front and now he's putting himself in harm's way for their sake. Now he's probably thinking, maybe Esau will only kill me. Because he knew what he was called to do. For us, reconciliation is is necessary, not just because we're commanded to be reconciled, because... God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. If we aren't reconciled, do you know that it allows an opportunity for the devil? Lack of reconciliation in a believer's life allows opportunities for the devil. The Bible tells us about one of the most dangerous intruders that can, that can come into our territory. One of the most dangerous intruders that can come into our homes that we need to guard against. You see in Ephesians 4.26, it says that, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. How do we give the the devil opportunity in our relationships? How can that be? How is the devil allowed into our children's bedroom? How do we let the devil enter our bedroom? We give opportunity through being angry. Shamefully, I'm often finding myself there and in need personally of, of reconciliation with my spouse, with my children as well. And you know what? When, when, we, when we fail to reconcile, boy, all kinds, all kinds of evil things grow. We open ourselves up. We give opportunity through being angry. If we go to bed angry with our spouse, our children, no steps of reconciliation being pursued. It's, we're opening the doors wide to the devil in our, in our marriages, in our soul, in our, in our family, 
It can be destroyed if we don't protect our family through reconciliation. It's not an easy thing. Jacob went out ahead. He was protecting his family. He wanted to be reconciled with his brother so he could spare his family as well. And You know what? If we're not reconciled, the ugly root of bitterness, it creeps in. Have you experienced that? I have. If you have experienced my wife, who I love dearly and think is, is perfect. Well, not theologically so, because I know she sins. But, but, but the ugly root of bitterness, it can creep in and resentment can grow. And our eyes are changed from seeing God and seeing other people through God to seeing those people through those unreconciled offenses and seeing other people through those things. We hold it against them. The devil uses that to wreak all kinds of, of havoc in our hearts and our minds and our relationships. And we give opportunity to him. Man, let me entreat you for a moment. If you're to truly lead and care for your family, you want to be a godly man? You want, to, you want to lead? You want to care for your family? Don't let the devil in in this area. And if you have, and it's not your fault, hypothetically, if, if your spouse is the one and she keeps doing the same things over and over again, and, it's, and she's never saying she's sorry, you need to humble yourself and lead. Step out. Reconcile yourself. Maybe you have a, a teenager in your house and, and they're angry at you and maybe they're just being rebellious. Maybe you need to humble yourself and go to them. Find whatever bitch you can to claim responsibility and, and repent. Humble yourself. Go and seek reconciliation. Men, you need to initiate reconciliation. Don't be the one at the back. Go out in front. Take the lead ahead of your family. Be reconciled. Humble yourself. Be willing to look stupid. I bet it looked stupid as Jacob was bowing down seven times. I bet he felt like a fool. Don't get a bit angry at night. Don't let the fact that maybe the other person's sin get in the way of you pursuing this. You know, no matter who you are, you may feel like it's, it's justice to punish the other person because they're wrong and they've not asked you for an apology You didn't get justice. And you can be grateful for that. Don't let the fact that maybe the other person's sin get in the way of you pursuing the ministry of reconciliation. That's not the way that Jesus treats us. It's not the way that Jesus treats his bride. He doesn't wait. He comes to us time after time after time, again and again, when we sin against him in the same stupid old ways, again and again, when our offenses are egregious and we're blind. He comes to us again and again. That's how Jesus treats his bride. That's how we're to treat others in extending the ministry of reconciliation. He's the ultimate one who humbled himself for our reconciliation. We're to follow not just Jacob's example of humbling himself. We're to follow Christ's example of humbling himself to gain our reconciliation. And, and reconciliation, that's the second point this morning, just, it requires humility. Reconciliation requires humility. We have to be willing to die to ourselves. We have to be willing to place ourselves in harm's way, to die to our own desires, to die to our preferences, to humble ourselves. Jacob, 
Jacob went out in front, humbled himself before his brother. He bows down seven times. And remember back in Genesis 27 when all this kind of drama started with Jacob and Esau? You remember that? Genesis 27. It says, Isaac had blessed Jacob thinking it was Esau. Now listen to what he said. When, when, when Isaac was blessing Jacob thinking it was Esau, here's what he told Jacob. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. A few verses later in the same account, Isaac then tells Esau as well that Jacob will be Lord over him and Esau would serve him. Jacob had to have remembered that his blessing that he had now from his father, it really belonged to Esau. And it was he who should have been serving Esau. So as Jacob bowed, it wasn't just a a customary form of greeting. It communicated something. It communicated that he was wrong. Communicated that not only was he wrong, he was the one who should bow before Esau. And that's the position we're called to take before others that may have wronged us even. He was the one who should be Esau's servant. You, just, you didn't just bow to anyone in those days. You didn't just bow willy-nilly. You, just, you didn't bow down to somebody unless you meant it. You only bowed to somebody who you feared or who, somebody who you were inferior to or you bowed to worship or you, you bowed to a king. You wouldn't bow to somebody you were over or superior to. And even though Jacob had the title now, he officially was over Esau. But he didn't consider himself equal with Esau. He bows. Remember how important it was that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they didn't bow? They staked their lives on that because it meant something to bow before that idol. It meant something when Jacob was bowing, when he's humbling himself for his brother, bowing seven times, the number of perfection that culture would have been seen as a meaningful, a deep apology in that day. It was his perfect, complete submission. It would have meant something to Esau as well. And who knows at what point God changed Esau's heart because it would have required a heart change. Was it the gifts as the gifts kept coming? And Esau's thinking, well, why is my brother sending gifts? Oh, he's just trying to appease me. Or was it when he saw the first time that Jacob bowed? At some point in there, God changes his heart. And then the drama is broken. Instead of killing him, Esau runs to meet him and he embraces him. I can, I can imagine that as Esau was running toward him and Jacob was kind of limping, he was hobbling this way and thinking, at one moment, probably about mm, this far away, he probably winced, closed his eyes, thinking, oh, this is it, I'm going to get it. He's either going to hit me, he's going to take me down, he's going to tackle me, something's going to happen here. So he, he probably wasn't quite certain until all of a sudden he was on him and he was hugging him and then and he was he was weeping on his neck and he was kissing him. God did an amazing work. More dramatic than any Hollywood scene of embrace. And in fact, the movies probably get their inspiration here. <laughs> there were tears of reconciliation, tears of regret, tears of forgiveness, tears of love. And then, like any other normal grown men, they, they kind of, you can picture them, they go like, <laughs> they stop crying, and he's like, okay, so, so who are these people? Who are these people over here? <clears throat> you know, he's recomposing himself, changes the subject, who are these with you? Don't really say anything about what just happened there. That's a very guy-like thing to do. <laughs> Jacob makes a few points in his answer, though. He immediately gives the credit to God. He's a changed man. He immediately gives the credit to God. And he credits God's grace. 
And then he makes sure that Esau got the message. He said that he is Esau's servant. He doesn't view himself as Esau's superior any longer. He's not grasping to be more than him. He's not trying to position himself as better than his brother. Like so often we try to position ourselves as better or superior in a conflict. He's no longer doing that. Instead, he's positioning himself as a servant. Saying, I'm not, I'm not better. The heart change has occurred. He sees that he, he should serve Esau. You see, the servants and their children and the, and, the, and the wives, they all saw his example, and they bowed down to Esau just like he did too. Then Esau asks him a question that he already knows the answer to. Did you get that when you're reading it? Esau said, well, what are all these droves all about? What's all this entourage? What, what are all these things about? And if you remember back in chapter 32, Jacob had clearly given them a message to every drove, every group, to give to Esau when they encountered him. They were, they were going to say, when Esau, my brother, meets you back in 32, if you want to look down there for a moment. When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and, and who are these ahead of you, you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. And that happened time after time after time after time, and then Jacob appears. Esau wasn't unclear here. He was making a point. He was seeing where Jacob's heart really was. He wanted to hear it from his brother. And you know what? This is one of the first times that Jacob is, is just completely forthright with Esau. He's completely forthright with Esau. Entirely. He, he answers him honestly. He says, I, I did it to, to try to gain your favor. That's, I did it to try to find favor in your, in your sight, my Lord. He was honest with him. He says, my Lord, the one to whom I owe honor and obedience. He calls his brother, my Lord, five times in this account. It reinforces both his humility and genuine repentance. He humbled himself. He honestly called his brother Lord, not considering himself equal with his brother. Somebody else, the greater Israel. The promised chosen one. The one who Israel did, 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 was not able to live up to. Did not perfectly obey. Did not keep the covenant. But the true Israel has come. A perfect Israel has come. And that's Jesus. And he didn't consider himself equal with God. It says he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But made himself nothing. And then like Jacob we're called to humble ourselves. And consider ourselves as nothing. Consider others as better than ourselves if, if we're to be reconciled to each other. Remember the book of Proverbs. It said that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride keeps us from receiving God's grace. Maybe there's an area of pride in your life that you just don't want to give up. It's a tool the devil uses, hoping to keep us from being reconciled, hoping we keep open an opportunity for him to destroy us. Married folks, humble yourself with your spouse. Parents, we need to humble ourselves with our children. Even though my kids are young, I've seen when I've been able to repent where I've sinned against them. That has more effect than anything on them. They already know my bonehead. They already know that I sinned. It's not like they don't see it all the time. What makes a difference to them is when they see that I repent and ask their forgiveness and then ask them for their, their input. 
Singles, you need to humble yourselves with your roommates, other singles. You may have judged. Maybe you're bitter or resentful against somebody else in this room. And Youth, maybe you need to humble yourselves with your classmates, your friends, or those you consider rivals. Wherever you find yourself, we need to humble ourselves with our fellow believers in the church, humble ourselves with family members, humble ourselves with our neighbors. Well, this really applies to our life, doesn't it? See, Peter wrote in, in 1 Peter 5, 5, he, he said, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, he's quoting Proverbs, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The same mighty hand of God that touched Jacob. So that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jacob had to cast his anxiety on meeting Esau. He had to cast that anxiety on God. And remember that God cared for him in order for him to humble himself. And we need to do the same thing. In Philippians, we're actually commanded to be at peace with each other in light of the sacrifice of Jesus. It says, having the same love, being in full accord, of one mind, do nothing from rivalry, conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, because we already do that, don't we? We already, all of us are already looking to our own interests. We don't, we don't need to be encouraged to do that. But also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the perfect Israel, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus, the ultimate Israel. He placed himself between God's wrath and us. He placed himself between God and the bride. Taking all the wrath that we deserve and sparing our lives. And you see in this account, Esau was moved. Instead of greeting him as Jacob's Lord, he, he greets him as a loving brother. And then what transpires next, you see a little bit of etiquette back and forth in that day. It would have been very typical in Middle Eastern culture to have that dialogue where Esau politely refuses and Jacob convinces him that, no, please take this gift. But we see more than that here. We see real sincerity from Jacob where he pleads with him with the same earnestness that he pleaded with God to, to, to not let him go, to give him a blessing. In order for the forgiveness that Jacob needed to be secured... Jacob knew that that gift that he was bringing, that he was sending ahead to Esau, that it had to be accepted, so that he could point back to that gift and, and say, remember Esau, you accepted my forgiveness. You accepted it. The price has been paid in full. No longer is there enmity between us. You accepted my forgiveness because you accepted the sacrifice. In the same way, Jesus, it says in Romans that he, he intercedes the right hand of God for us. What is, what is that intercession? That intercession is saying, God, remember, you've accepted the sacrifice completely. Forgiveness has been done. The acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, it served to forever secure our reconciliation with God. Just like the acceptance of the sacrifice with Esau served to secure that reconciliation in a greater way. You see that people of Israel, they would have realized that 
Okay, we're learning some things about God, about reconciliation, about humility, about that we depend upon God to be reconciled, but yet they would have seen that, that, that all the patriarchs failed. In all the Old Testament, it keeps pointing forward, no, this isn't the one, this isn't the one, this isn't salvation, this isn't redemption, doesn't come in this person. We need something better, someone better. We need true reconciliation, and now Jesus has brought that. But as in the life of Jacob, as in the life of Jacob, reconciliation, it required a sacrifice. And reconciliation, the third point for us, is that reconciliation may require sacrifice for us. I hate to hear that, by the way. I'm guessing nobody here likes that. I don't like that. I don't like having the idea of having to sacrifice to be reconciled. There's a word here used for accept when he's pleading that he would accept the sacrifice. And it's the word that's later on, it, it's only used as a sacrificial term in reference to acceptance of a sacrifice by God. It's the only other place it's used, this word for accept. Please accept my, my gift, this present, this blessing. So Jacob pleads for him to accept the sacrificial gift as a sign that Esau will accept him. in the gift of 550 animals... This is apology. That's, that's no small gift, by the way. We can kind of gloss over that. He sent these animals and those animals. Oh, he had plenty. He was rich. He was wealthy. That's great. Um, but the apology came with a huge price. This wasn't cheap. Remember, this is an agrarian society. They didn't have a lot of, they didn't have a lot of grass there either. There weren't a lot of watering holes. There weren't veterinarians. There wasn't modern health care for animals. So what the, all that stuff means is that you're not going to have as big a herd. It's going to be harder for herds to survive. To, to amass this kind of wealth to, to give? This would be lifetime worth of wealth for most people, or, or more. And, and just today's dollars, I did a little math, and today's dollars alone, and, and, and by the way, it would have been more than that, and today's dollars alone, it would have been like half a million dollars. This isn't a small gift. Oh, please accept my gift. You know, sometimes you feel like sacrifices. Oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give, you know, what really won't, I won't feel any pain for. I bet Jacob felt pain. It, it was something he, he was giving this up as a sacrifice. Half a million dollars for us. And that day, smaller herds, less access to water, food, and the like. I bet this was a huge part of his wealth and his fortune. And he was, he was having a trust that God would provide. And he says something, indicates he doesn't say, I, I'm still wealthy. He says, I have enough. Indicating that God, God will provide for me. He's giving away the, the most of his wealth. He had enough. He trusted the promise of God, the provision of God. And there's an interesting little change of words in the ESV. It captures an accurate sense in the Hebrew between verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, he asks Esau to please accept my present. If you look down at verse 10 for a moment. And then in verse 11, he uses a different word. He says, please accept my blessing. And that, that really accurately reflects the meaning of the word there. In effect, Jacob's saying, please take this gift. Please take my blessing, the blessing that I got that rightly belonged to you, the blessing that I got from dad, take this as, as, as my blessing. Take my blessing. I wrongly, I, I surreptitiously got it from you. And then remarkably, Esau accepts his apology, takes his gift, and accepting that, he was accepting Jacob, he was extending forgiveness, and he was saying the debt had been paid, no debt remained. And Esau was probably sincere as well, and the narrator adds that he, he only accepted a gift because Jacob insisted and. Now we see the relationships have been healed. They've been restored to each other. 
But Jacob had to sacrifice. We may have to sacrifice in order to be reconciled. It's not a guarantee, but it's a pretty good likelihood we'll have to sacrifice something. Sometimes we sacrifice our pride. We may need to make restitution. It may be costly to us as it was to Jacob. It may mean we give up something very real, some desire that we have. We might be, have to sacrifice to be reconciled. We may need to sacrifice our time in pursuing reconciliation. We may need to sacrifice energy in pursuing reconciliation. What's God calling you to sacrifice to be reconciled? Maybe it's our reputation like Jacob sacrificed his reputation. Before all of his people, all of his men, all of his servants, all of his family, all of his brother's men and his brother, he was a fool and humbled himself. Bowing his, the word is bowing his face into the dirt. We may not have to sacrifice in order to be reconciled, but the question is, are we willing to sacrifice to be reconciled? Ultimately, you know, Jesus paid the greatest sacrifice that we could be reconciled to God. And that's our hope and our motivation as well as we go and be reconciled with somebody else. And, And lastly, our final point is that reconciliation, it is from God. Look down at verse 10 for a moment again. It says, Jacob says something. He equates seeing Esau's face with seeing the face of God. What? I've seen your face. It's like seeing the face of God. Well, Esau is this big, ugly, red head, you know, kind of gross-looking hunter of a man. I don't think he looked like God physically. What does he mean? He means he understood that seeing Esau's face in a positive way, it was seeing a miraculous answer to prayer. This is a manifestation of God's presence and power in the reconciliation with his brother. So when he sees his brother face to face, it's like he sees the face of God. He sees God at work. He understood to some degree that seeing God's face and seeing his brother's face, they were connected and clearly God had done this because it wasn't his effort. Finally, Jacob is getting it. It's not his shrewdness. It's not even all his gifts that got it. It's not even his humility that got it. This is God that wrought this. And that's where our hope is. That's where our trust is too. You see, Esau, in the very end, he could have taken all of Jacob's gifts. And he could have watched Jacob humble himself and said, You're right. I am your Lord. And now I'm going to cut your head off. He could have. And in one sense, it would have been just. But God had done a work in the heart of this man who had been hating him for 20 years. Do we believe, Christian, that God can change the heart of others in our lives? Do you believe that God can change your heart? Do you know that God can, God, His grace can bring about a change in your adversaries too? Do you pray for God? Do you pray for God to change their hearts? Do you pray for God to change your heart, most importantly? Do you pray that God would enable you to humble yourself before your enemies? God's grace is sufficient to change those you might be tempted to think they will never change. You all have somebody like that. God's grace can change you too, just like it changed Jacob. Jacob needed to be changed first before you were meant to be reconciled. There's a good chance if you're unreconciled with somebody else that change needs to first occur inside of you. And God needs to do work in reconciliation in your own heart. And you know, I believe that God, 
Jacob refers to grace or favor, graciously favor. They're all the same root word, basically. And it's, it's, I believe that God wants for us today to see his grace in the midst of sin, his grace in the midst of family difficulties, his grace in the face of potential punishment, grace in the hearts and minds of men. I think the story is meant to function in another way. It's meant to increase our faith in God. It's meant to increase our faith in God as the God of all grace who redeems even our heinous sin like God redeemed even Jacob's heinous sin and changes even the most hardened hearts. And in the, and, and, and in the last three verses, as, as the story is drawing to a close, we see, though, that it doesn't even depend on Jacob's faithfulness. You know why? Because Jacob blew it in the end. he just seen God work mightily. God reconciled him. He'd seen God. He wrestled with God. God touched him. He gave him a new name. He's reconciled with his brothers like he's seen the face of God again. And then what does he do? He doesn't obey God. God called him to go to Bethel, and he didn't go to Bethel. Instead, he went to Succoth, which is on the wrong side of the Jordan. And he, he built a house there. So he stayed a few years. What was he doing? Clueless. He knew he was supposed to go to, to Bethel. He didn't go. He, he probably was thinking like Jacob was in the past. Like we're all prone to our indwelling remaining sin, those same temptations remain, remain for Jacob to say, you know what, I gave up all my wealth, I'm going to stay in Succoth. You know why? Because Succoth was a really fertile land. It had lots of pastures, it was green, it, had, it, was, it was fed with streams, and this was a good place to, to build his, his flock up before he obeyed God. So he wasn't really obeying God. He blew it. And then God called him to go to Bethel, but for some reason he doesn't go to Bethel in the end. He doesn't, he doesn't go there at all. He goes, he goes to Shechem. Which is just like a day's travel above Bethel. What's, what's this dummy thinking? We're often dummies like that too, aren't we? We, we, we? we see God's work. We see God's greatness. We see what he does. We see how he's brought reconciliation in our hearts and our minds and relationships. And what he's done is this great. God calls us to things. But, we're, but we're, we, we lack faith and we fail and we still fumble. And, and yet our hope is not in that. Our hope is that, is that it's from God. Our hope is in God in the end. Maybe, maybe Jacob thought he was close enough. I don't know what excuses he told himself. and We can tell ourselves a million excuses as well for why we don't fully obey God the way we know we should and we justify it a thousand ways and I'm sure Jacob did. Thanks be to God. We don't rely on our performance. Jacob if he relied on his performance, God, he was unfaithful to the covenant so many times. And so are we. We're unfaithful time after time, and yet God is a God of reconciliation. He's the one who's worked in our hearts. He's the one who will enable us to be humble. Our, our dependence, every time we fail, we get back up again and say, God, my faith, my hope, my trust is in you, not in my failure, not in my ability to obey. At the very close of this scene, and if the band will go ahead and come up, we're going to close and worship in a minute or so, but at the very close of this scene, we're left with hope in God. Where does he... Unfortunately, we're going to see the, the consequences of his, his lack of obedience. We're going to see that in the next chapter, and they were horrific. They were sad. The consequences of partial obedience, which is really disobedience, but... But we're not left with that. We're left with hope in the middle of, of this foreboding that we have. We're given this, this, this foreboding, this foreshadowing that something bad's about to happen because he didn't fully obey yet. Yet, we're left with hope. 
See, Jacob erects a pillar. Jacob erects a pillar before God because he knew that his hope was really in God, that God had saved him. And he erected an altar then. He called it El Elohi Israel. And God is the God of Israel. God is your God as well. The mighty God is your God. The mighty God of deliverance is your God, my God. And he is the God who will deliver. And it depends on him and his faithfulness. Jacob was called to obey and trust in God. We're called to obey, pursue reconciliation, humility, maybe even sacrifice. But ultimately, trust God to go and be reconciled. I'm going to read you one last, one last scripture, and it's Colossians. It's Colossians 1.19. For in him, and you can go and stand with this as you're listening to it. For in him, speaking of, of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Maybe you are aware of areas you are not holy and blameless. You're not above reproach. Maybe you're aware of areas that you don't deserve forgiveness yourself, but the hope is not in that. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in the reconciliation we have with Jesus, that he has made us holy and blameless and above reproach as we see his sacrifice for us, then we can go in faith, trusting God to obey. Well, let's, let's worship the Lord.